From Nokia Bell Labs, this is Future Human, a series about the human potential of technology. This is a special bonus episode. If you haven't listened to episode five, A Friend's Warning, you should go back and do that, as it'll set up this one. For this episode, we're pleased to present in its entirety a recent lecture by Stephen Friend, chairman of Sage BioNetworks and member of the Apple Health team. Friend was presenting as part of Bell Labs' Shannon Luminary series in May of 2017. The lecture is entitled, The Future of Human Agency, Exploration of the Role of Art and Technology in Determining Risk, Awareness, and Free Will. The first voice you hear will be that of Bell Labs president and Nokia CTO, Marcus Weldon. And stay tuned after the lecture for the audience Q&A. We came across uh, Stephen uh, through Beattie, who's sitting down here. And those of you who know who Beattie is, she's uh, our preeminent uh, experiments in art and technology collaborator. Round of applause for Beattie. Uh, it was Beattie who said, you know, I've met uh, Stephen Friend, and he's super. He's just amazing. He's a really good guy. Uh, you should get to know him. So we, we had a call, and... Uh, Immediately, I think we hit it off. Uh, so the best thing I can say about him is he, he has two defining characteristics that I think are superb. One is he went to Harvard, and we all know the best people went to Harvard. He was, <laughs> he was on the faculty at Harvard, so he was actually superior to me. Uh, and, uh, but secondly, he's, he's a classic Bell Labsian person. As Chris just said to me, he's a genius. And we rate people fairly uh, highly in Bell Labs. We pride ourselves on being smarter than the average bear. Uh, but uh, he really is. I've, I've gotten him a little bit more. The team spent the day with him and had dinner with him last night and think he's a truly remarkable human being, and I, I concur, and I think you're going to find that in the talk. I'll say a little bit about why he, he is that way, and this is going to be why I make it up. Uh, no, other than uh, growing up in the Midwest, which uh, inevitably makes you solid, uh, he then obviously went to Harvard. He worked at something called the Whitehead Institute and, ca- and discovered the first uh, tumor suppression gene with a team in 1986. He then did a number of things, including uh, founding a company called Sage BioNetworks that was premised on the idea of uh, having open tools and platforms that allowed researchers to share data. Imagine the novelty of that concept, right? That they would share medical data so you could actually learn from each other as opposed to keep them in silos and write individual papers that essentially didn't ever see the whole picture. In that Sage BioNetworks work, he's also started something called the Resilience Project, which allows you to actually tell you what's not wrong with you. And I'll explain that a little bit in my limited understanding. Uh, Rather than asking the sick people why they're sick, you ask the people who are genetically similar to them, meaning they're a relative or they have the same genome uh, to a good approximation, why they're not sick. And then you look at the things that essentially have allowed them to remain healthy despite the presence of some uh, gene that that should have actually caused a condition. So that's the resilience project. And then uh, there's a dream initiative where he basically puts out grand challenges for can we solve these problems together uh, in a collaborative way. So all of that in his work at Sage, which he remains, I think, chairman of the board and co-founder and head guru. Uh, but he's now at Apple also helping them figure out what makes sense in healthcare in terms of measuring using some of these wearable devices and what does not. In other words, really putting them on a solid footing. We hope he puts us on a solid footing because we have ambitions to understand human physiology as we've shared before. So without any further ado, what I will call him is a true Bell Labser, even though it's his first uh, visit here. So uh, welcome to the stage, Stephen, and we look forward to this very much.
introduction, um, and it comes on top of a delightful week. Um, I've been here since Monday. Um, as you heard, the uh, engagement uh, that has been going on with uh, the use of the the, the raw space project, uh, BD Wolf, and, and that sort of began uh, some of those uh, interactions with people here at the lab. But the time that was uh, spent that was set up by Sanjay and, and others uh, to um, explore not just at a scientific but an artistic level what was going on, uh, et cetera, this week, um, there couldn't have been a better way to get uh, in the mood and to see what was going on. So we'll see what, what happens from that. Um, so the title here, um, The Future of Human Agency, Exploration of the Role of Art and Technology, um, is one that I had help. Uh, Marcus, thank you for getting some clarity into, into this uh, uh, title. Um, the... Um, what I'm going to try to do is to weave some themes together that have to do with how we think, what we're responsible for um, in technology um, and and in art. And to do that, if you want to sort of uh, sort of know where we are in in the in the talk, um, I'm going to be spending time talking about um, digital codes that encode life, and and how we can actually um, probe uh, those uh, to to identify therapies in ways you might not uh, anticipate. I'm then going to switch over, and I'm going to look at other digital codes and uh, this important uh, opportunity to navigate uh, between health and disease, the 362 days that hopefully you're not in the presence of a, of a physician. Um, I'm going to move over to... Um, how um, our lives are um, being controlled. People are planning on, on controlling them. Uh, the role of agency and, and free will. And that's going to uh, sort of allow me to go into some aspects of trust and fear that I think are, are appropriate today in our in our world, particularly the last uh, 106 days or whatever. Um, and and the and the role of art and technology in determining awareness and, and free will. So from the Egyptian and uh, Taoist texts to Homeric tales and, and, and Nordic uh, sagas, uh, from Shakespearean uh, plays to looking at uh, classic or looking at uh, Germanic opera, um, we have this sense that what happens to us, to others, uh, those around us, are somehow being driven by some element of nature and nurture. It's, it's something that has uh, been described as fate. It's been described as you know, destiny. But, but um, this concept of, of what is that about, what, what element of that is really coming from nature, what is coming from, from nurture, is something that in the last hundred years we've actually made some progress. <laughs> it's a, a different way we're looking at it than if we were sitting here a um, hundred years ago. And in, in, a, in a simplistic way, um, my guess is that most of you in, in the audience sort of have this idea of, well, it's a little more nature, it's a little more nurture. So this, this idea that things such as Down syndrome or hemophilia are likely to be genetic and when you get over to tuberculosis or scurvy, it's more environmental. I think we carry around in our head some sort of template that says, um, uh, oh, that's something which is more genetic. That is something that's uh, more about nurture. I'm going to try to blow that up. <laughs> I'm going to try to uh, realize the simplicity of, of that. It's a good rubric, but uh, it's uh, potentially uh, simplistic. And to do that, I want to go back about 100 years. I want to go back to when uh, monks 
and scientists were close in terms of what they were looking at. I want to go back to Mendel. Um, and uh, he did a remarkable experiment that I think uh, somewhere in your education you probably ran across, which is this concept that he did um, growing peas <laughs> and, and looking at what happened to the progeny when he had peas that were one color or one shape. And, and the, the laws of segregation in terms of genetic information you have to understand we're, we're literally conjuring up ideas. These are really theories. There's very little data other than the fact that this appeared to happen that, that could back it up in terms of the physical reality that was making that happen. And uh, this description, I think, is, is appropriate, where hereditary traits are transmitted by small elements called genes. Okay, I think that's familiar. These genes are carried in rod-like bodies, chromosomes, and a large number of genes lying side by side along the length of the chromosome. Chromosomes occur in pairs, and an individual obtains one chromosome of each pair from his mother and the other from his father. <laughs> so I, I show that for two reasons. I show it because it's a, it's a good definition, it, it's coherent, it's from that time. But there's another reason. This is the Shannon lecture. And after Claude Shannon did his spectacular master's thesis, you know, the one that some people say was maybe the world's most influential master. What do you do? <laughs> you know, you've done your master's thesis. <laughs> and uh, so what are you going to do next? Well, it depends upon where you are. And he was in the presence of uh, Vanderveer Bush. And at that time, it was uh, uh, um, looking at you know, who could do what in what project. And Vanderveer Bush had a lot to do with the war effort. But also he was with the Carnegie Foundation, and he was interested in trying to move other fields along. And, and he said, this guy's a really a sharp whippersnapper. Let's uh, see if he could maybe add an algebraic concept to something that's really emerging, um, to concepts of a genetic. So that was uh, exerted from, excerpted from Shannon's PhD thesis that description of, of heredity. And the part that I like uh, is the ending of his introduction where he says, um, hereafter, we shall speak therefore as though the genes actually exist <laughs> and as though our simple representation of uh, hereditary phenomena were really true. <laughs> Since so far as we are concerned, this might as just as well be so. <laughs> That's a pretty big, you know, well... Uh, uh, I'll fill in the blank a little bit. Um, and uh, we will omit, I like this, we will omit from consideration mutations, right? Let's, let's, let's not worry about mutations and let's not worry about the sex chromosomes. So let's dial forward um, to um, 80s, uh, 40, 40 years later. And um, I want to um, use a little personal vignette, but it's one that was uh, illustrative of uh, what many people were doing. So for clinician scientists who were used to thinking of diseases as things you looked up in books and they had pictures with a description and you matched the, the symptom, the idea of actually finding that gene that uh, Claude described as it's real, right? And finding the gene and finding the mutation um, was uh, quickly becoming something that wasn't uh, hyperbole, wasn't science fiction. But it was at the edge of, of, uh, of that in, in, in the 80s. And at that time, I was a, a resident children's hospital of Philadelphia, uh, working in, uh, interested in oncology. And uh, father came into an examining room with a young boy who had um, an obvious defect in his uh, left eye. 
and um, that was uh, sad, but it was made more poignant by the fact that if you looked at the data, it was clear that he also actually had also a left-sided uh, um, uh, uh, eye lesion, which in fact was that he had had the same lesion. He passed it on to his son. He knew he had. And that was a pretty heavy burden for him to bear. And out of those moments, I think, um, come that yearning to do things differently. Sometimes something like that. And it sure changed what I was doing uh, and um, led my interest when I got up to Children's and Harvard uh, during fellowship to try to work on that, that project. And um, we were lucky for several reasons. The first was from a mathematician, a mathematician a scientist, Al Knudsen, who I got to know, who did a very simple thing. He took all the cases that had been coming in the hospitals um, of retinoblastoma, extremely rare tumor, a couple of hundred, maybe three, four hundred uh, people with retinoblastoma in the country uh, at any one time. And he um, plotted the age at which they were getting their tumors, um, very young, um, under age of uh, two through six, seven, eight years of age. This is in months, not years. Um, and um, noticed that those individuals that got bilateral disease were getting those uh, tumors at a different uh, um, earlier, uh, when there was bilateral, than unilateral, and could see that there was a one-hit, two-hit model here that suggested that there wasn't some activation of a single event, but maybe the chance of, of getting retinoblastoma was determined by the loss of two functions. Um, if you were born with only one there, that risk was extremely high, um, and um, came up with this hypothesis that maybe there were genes, which if you were to disrupt them, that that could cause cancer. Not activations, not oncogenes, but actually this theory that was out there. And the field had moved along significantly. It was rather ripe to the extent where people were looking at patients' uh, chromosomes, and they began to find one chromosome, 13th chromosome, where there was a segment that in some uh, patients, the deletion or the, the, the uh, sort of error was so large that you could actually see it under a microscope. So there was a sense somewhere on 13 is something that, that's going to matter. And uh, what was needed to do to, to basically clone out in those days was you would find a fragment that you could somehow label um, and you could mesh it so that you could see whether the DNA from that piece was there at a DNA level or an RNA level. So in this instance, um, you could label a fragment from where you think that gene was. You could go in and probe tumors and find out whether the edges of the gene were intact and something was missing in the middle. Then you'd know that it wasn't the neighboring gene. So you could do that at a, at a DNA level. Similarly, you could take the expressed uh, genes from uh, a retina, uh, shown there as RET, or tumors, then you could show that there was some gene that you had uh, a good clue was there that was uh, clearly not there in the tumors and otherwise there. And so that led to um, the hypothesis that there was a gene there that could allow one to um, be susceptible, if, if altered, gave susceptibility to retinoblastoma. The same issue in nature, same time. Uh, Luke Kunkel had figured out there was a gene for muscular dystrophy. They put those papers together. Um, Francis Collins, who runs the NIH, 
two weeks later, had an article that for cystic fibrosis, they found the gene for that. So it was like one of those times where it's just a matter of who was looking at what, what gene would uh, come out. And there was a sense with the naive, probably inappropriate hubris of scientists that, wow, it's over. <laughs> you know, just now a matter of filling in the pieces. You know, found this, everyone And to a certain extent, there's an element of, of, uh, of re- reality in that. Um, um, but, but the story I want to tell is yes, but. So for, um, let's pick the X chromosome since uh, Shannon said, let's not talk about the X chromosome. Let's talk about the X chromosome. So here's the X chromosome. Here's a mapping. It's not actually um, all the genes that you would fill up. Uh, I don't have the um, display capabilities that you at the Bell Labs have. I probably could have done it. But this is many genes on the X chromosome. And as you can see, what's sort of interesting, here's the sex chromosome. Look at all the different uh, types of uh, diseases from cell metabolism to the kidney, obesity, blood, that are sitting there on the X chromosome, on the sex chromosome. But the point is, there are thousands of um, Mendelian diseases, and for the most part, those have, have been mapped. And that could be a pretty simple story. We have these uh, genes, we have these Mendelian uh, diseases, we match them up, and we um, have, have, a, have a beautiful map. It's not like that. Um, for any one uh, disease, here, let's go in and drill in on, on obesity. Um, here's a list of more than a dozen genes that are altered uh, or, or who contribute to whether obesity is in that individual. Again, that list is not complete. Notice the one on the X chromosome isn't on this list. And the point is, so there's not a one-to-one mapping. It's not, this is the gene for this, this is the gene for that. We begin to realize that um, there are many, many genes that could map to certain uh, uh, symptoms. And so the complexity of sorting out which one matters, how is this all going to work, became uh, something to, to solve. And... Similar to that, I think, transition when Hubble used the uh, uh, telescope and began to realize you know, it isn't just one galaxy. It's out there, whether it was the physicist who said, okay, I've got an atom that's good enough. For, for geneticists, for biologists, the other thing that began to happen was that for any one gene that was associated with a disease, there wasn't one mutation in that uh, gene. It was hundreds to thousands. So here is that RB gene, retinoblastoma gene. Here's a a map. Again, there's probably 10x that number of mutations now known. So it becomes a problem. Are all those going to cause disease? Well, some of them, where there's a loss of function early, where there's a stop codon early, that's easy to do. But what do you do with one of those mutations that's a single amino acid change in the middle of the uh, protein? Are you going to say that's actionable? So people have begun to uh, deal with that complexity. And um, in the area of cancer susceptibility, uh, another uh, good one to follow is in uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2, the breast cancer genes. Um, For BRCA1 alone, there are thousands of mutations that have been found. So when someone uh, gets a report back, I found this person has a mutation in that gene, um, what you want to make sure happens is not that that person assumes that that's going to be um, an actionable mutation. And so now what people do, and they've begun to do it in open spaces, not in closed companies, which is what was done up until a year ago, 
Um, there are open repositories where you can go in and you can look at all those mutations. You can look at which ones look like they're associated with disease, and you can take actions off of that type of information. So to summarize sort of where we are, let's start with those Mendelian mutations. Basically, everyone is carrying some sort of loss of function mutations that have the potential to cause serious disease. It is estimated that each of us carry about 300 of those. Many of us, 300 different than the next person and the next person. So you're walking around with 300 of your 10,000 plus genes who don't have any function. And each of us have a little different mix, and some of them are new, and some of them are old, but they're sitting out there. Um, When you uh, look and uh, talk about uh, uh, individuals at at birth, children, um, about one in 100 uh, babies are harboring uh, mutations that will cause catastrophic illness. 1%. 5% of children have some sort of uh, mutations uh, that result in failure to thrive, something that isn't as devastating as whether the individual is going to survive or not. That's 5%, or actually, sorry, 2%. If you come over here, one in five adults are carrying variants, whether it's for blood clotting or for heart disease or dementia. One in five of us, so in a room like this, uh, you know, um, more than uh, 50 individuals are carrying mutations that are basically setting us up for a, for a mutation, something worth uh, trying to identify. And virtually all of us are carrying some sort of mutations that change how we respond if we're going to take, whether it's Tylenol or Warfarin or antibiotic, how that, how that drug's going to work uh, within our, our bodies. So this information has gotten to the point in the last... Uh, uh, 40 years, where there are a lot of things you could do with it. It's clear that it's lined up in general ways, but 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 here's the the puzzle that that keeps this uh, from uh, um, getting uh, to be more impactful. Remember that I talked about the experiment with the peas, and there was the equivalent of variable penetrance um, that you have um, in in the offspring. But there's another phenomenon that's called various variable expressivity, which is actually from those same individuals, parents, there are chances that you're not going to just have this polar one phenotype or another, but for many uh, conditions, you have this sort of blend between one extreme of the, of the other. And we have very little idea how that penetrance uh, com- comes about. Next uh, wrinkle is that the coding part of the of the genome is a small fraction, sort of like the universe and dark matter. A small fraction of the genome is is making up the the regions where we code the proteins. And um, like uh, other systems, you consider it junk unless you need to uh, unless you realize it has value. So it's considered as junk, dark matter. People have begun to look at what it does and. The portions uh, around the gene often determine the when it's expressed, how it's expressed, um, not in the coding region, but just sort of regulated um, uh, how it's uh, being able to be expressed. And sometimes these things happen across chromosomes, so there's a whole question of what are we going to do with that. And what that does is it puts a model out there where we have orders of magnitude more effects, but the ability to make appropriate predictions as to whether that particular mutation in that individual is really going to have a benefit or, 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 or a risk and how much of a risk 
we're absolutely, we should be humbled and realize how, how early it is. And the tools that many of you use to look at how to um, uh, find patterns, um, how to find uh, uh, sort of uh, connections between certain facts and uh, actions um, is totally ripe now. There's enough data out there to be able to start begin to model what is the consequence of, of these mutations. And I think... Um, it would, will allow us to also look at this difference between nature and, and nurture. And I want to end this uh, um, uh, section with two thoughts. Um, the first is that almost all of the association of a particular mutation with an outcome, uh, sort of how, you know, how does this uh, express itself, the symptoms, um, has been done unbelievably <laughs> naively assuming that you either have or you don't have a disease, or you have or you don't have a symptom. Almost all this work has been, this is someone who does or doesn't have Alzheimer's. This is someone who does or does not have uh, a a cancer. Um, And uh, there is, it's obvious that that um, limits the ability to actually interrogate and use that information. And so one of the logical things that is sitting there for anyone uh, to do is to figure out a way to shift from that binary phenotype through to uh, basically leveraging the full spectrum of phenotypes that are sitting there, and that will increase the ability to mesh and to understand um, what gene is, is connecting with what gene to give what phenotype. And the wonderful thing is that the sensors, the devices, the ability of tracking, not qualitative, biased, subjective uh, um, data on individuals, but quantitative, repeatable, continuous, multidimensional, quantitative data is the key to actually trying to figure out penetrance. So it's sort of fun. We're, we're 60 years or 70 years away from when Shannon did his uh, thesis. The solidity of the concept of genes and what's going on has come out. We have these maps. But the thing that has popped up from the digital world that uh, uh, is really spectacular is how we could use all these sensors to begin to have multidimensional uh, representations of the phenotype in order to decode that complexity that's sitting there on the, on the genetic component. And that is, is ripe for anyone who's uh, interested in, in projects. The other component of it is that um, if you're going to build an AI system and you're going to try to feed this data into it, um, there are sort of two different approaches that could be used. One is looking at those appropriate inputs. That's what I just uh, mentioned. But the other is... Uh, these phenotypes should be seen as uh, continuous uh, actions, and the really fun opportunity is to actually use those continuous measurements over time, not just those multidimensional quantitative objective uh, uh, aspects of those symptoms, and be able to track those in terms of predicting what's going to happen. And I think with those uh, appropriate inputs, with those learning from actions, with the ability to use uh, beyond just simple machine learning, putting in the inputs from the um, DNA, putting in the inputs from the from the sensors, um, I think uh, 
is um, going to be a fun playground for anyone who wants to, to try to work on that. So the remaining issues around predictions, I think, uh, will be uh, more about, um, for these predictions, how can they uh, be of some benefit? So for that, I'm going to turn to um, what may be uh, referred to as, as upside-down thinking. Um, Marcus uh, uh, kindly referred to it a little bit in, in, in the intro. Um, imagine that we have these big tables of genes, mutations, alterations for prediction, and it's coming along. But the whole original idea was that if you knew the gene that was responsible for a particular symptom um, or for a particular disease, you would be able to cure that disease. Find the gene, cure the disease. And that has been a disaster. There are maybe handfuls of uh, genes um, where the loss of function has opened up an opportunity to basically do replacement, where you, you say, I know this product is needed, and I'm going to substitute. I'm going to replace that product and give that back to the individual. And there are, um, I think, less than a handful of uh, those thousands of diseases where someone has figured out a way where the, the function is, is altered, and that's why the disease is there, of bringing in a molecule that actually warps or, or literally warps the, the protein structure back to being more, uh, more functional. Um, be- beautiful scientific work, but it's like this tiny fringe for which there's been any ability to, to identify um, a way of, of, of treating those patients. And so um, about five years or so ago, um, we were thinking of um, maybe there were better ways to, to do this. And um, the clue that came sort of like the sitting on the shoulder of which giant uh, analogy um, was that in uh, the late 80s, 90s, um, during the uh, AIDS epidemic uh, that was particularly severe in San Francisco, um, some astute clinicians realized that some of the individuals um, who had high levels of HIV, had the virus in them, were not getting AIDS. Again, really small, thin uh, subset uh, outliers uh, who um, had the virus but, but actually did not go on to get the disease. And uh, they began mapping the genomes of those individuals, looking for what was there. And what they noticed was that there was a protein that acted like a receptor at the surface. And as they found more and more out about it, what they realized, this receptor was the way that the virus got into the white cells. So if you have a mutation there and you can't get, the virus can't get into the white cells, you're not going to get uh, AIDS. Have a lot of virus, but you're not going to uh, get that. And that recognition that this is the receptor CCR5 was there immediately allowed researchers to ask: Are there ways that I could use a small molecule approach to be the equivalent of the mutations uh, that these individuals had that could block the channel? Could you block the channel the way the mutation did? So they um, did this work, and now one of the um, leading medicines that are sitting there able to be used for for AIDS is this CCR5 inhibitor because it's going to be able to work for everyone else. So that concept of how can I study those who did not get sick? Um, How could I, instead of the 99.9% of the time 
um, where an individual, where, where researchers were going, oh, I'm going to take all the individuals who have this disease, the the lens switched to, why don't we start looking at those people who should have gotten sick and didn't get sick? Is there a way? So sort of interesting, right? How do you find people that should have done something and they didn't? <laughs> Something about unknown knowns or unknown knowns, um, um, and and uh, uh, the the idea that we had was, let's go to pediatric diseases, and let's uh, look three four orders of uh, magnitude out from where you'd expect the age for those people to have their symptoms, and let's just look at normal people. And let's see if when we look at normal people in very large numbers. Could we identify um, the people who actually had mutations and they completely didn't get the, the, the disease so that they, you would never notice that they were there? And um, so we picked um, 120 genes, a little over 500 mutations, and set up a way. We, we wanted to, to sort of identify who, uh, you know, whether those individuals were out there that um, could be found that way. And uh, to do that... We, in the realm of sharing data, decided to go ask the places where the most uh, analysis had been done, uh, where uh, people had been uh, sequenced for some reason and the DNA was there, or there were some clues that were there, and gather, um, instead of new patients, let's go and gather from samples and from data analysis that had already been done. So we went to 23andMe. They had a half million patients, and they kindly offered to give us all of those. So anyone who was at 23andMe uh, at that time, we've looked at your DNA. Um, we went to China. Uh, we went to uh, Beijing Genomics. We took a whole set of people from there. We went to the Nordic countries. We went to the UK Biobank. And um, very quickly, with no work, best experiments are where you can take data that someone else has done and, and go and, and screen through. So we did this in months. Uh, the largest genetic study ever done, half a million uh, people. And we said, I'm just looking for, does that muta- person have a mutation in this gene or this gene? Not the whole genome, just here, 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 here. And we used those individuals who had whole genome sequencing and those that had phenotyping arrays that covered enough of about half of the genes we were looking for. And very quickly, we were able to find um, an extremely small number of individuals who fit uh, these criteria. In the end, out of that over half a million there were only uh, between uh, 10 and 15, depending upon how you uh, count, um, uh, examples out of a half million. But the evidence that that was possible, that, that those individuals existed out there, and they could be informative for that small set of the genome, right? So that's 100 out of the uh, 20,000 genes that we, that we looked at. And um, uh, so proof of concept Good start. Um, and then we have since then begun looking at um, non-pediatric diseases. So this is a project that was written up in the New York Times uh, a couple of years ago where we um, looked for individuals who should have gotten Alzheimer's disease and they didn't. Um, these are individuals who had a particular mutation in Alzheimer's uh, in the, that they had and their family members had. And this particular uh, in, uh, individual, Doug Whitney, who I worked with, um, he had brothers and uncles who had all died in their 40s, and he was 60-some, and he had no evidence of Alzheimer's whatsoever. Why was it that he had the same alteration that all his brothers and uncles had, and he did not? 
then what we do is we go in and do whole genome sequencing. We look at what's there. When we pull out something that's a candidate, you can go in and you can grow up cells and you can test to see whether something has the right uh, property. And so those experiments are going on, not just for pediatric diseases. And at the uh, Icon School of Medicine over in uh, Manhattan, where I did uh, some of this work with uh, Eric Schott and now uh, Jason Bobe, there's a site, there's a project um, where we're um, working on now collecting not a half million, but millions of individuals, different types of diseases ar- uh, around uh, that same approach. And, of course, we did this all around mutations. If you think of the concept of resilience... Um, and you think of what we started with, with CCR5, there is no reason why this idea of looking at those who should have gotten sick but didn't, um, you really could extend it to infectious diseases, to, to many other reasons that you would like to have for whether someone is, is resilient, and those types of projects are going on. And uh, lastly, um, I was mentioning this difference between the, the power that comes in understanding penetrance between using binary phenotypes and uh, looking at uh, digital phenotypes over time. Same advantage of uh, looking at um, subtle differences in whether someone does or does not have a disease and resilience, you can imagine, could be applied. The same concept of what is buffering someone could be applied in that resilience project. And you might be able to get to what is still one of the, the puzzles, which is right now when you tell a, a person they have a four or 80% chance of getting a disease, that person doesn't want to know that. What they want to know is, do I have a real chance or am I one of those one in five that is not going to have a chance? They don't want to hear 80% probability. They want to know what. And the way we're going to get there is by doing work such as, as this. I'm going to switch to the next section, which is along benefits of thinking in the present. Um, I'm going to go back to Claude Shannon. This is a beautiful palindromic uh, uh, description. We know the past, but we cannot control it. We control the future, but we cannot know it. And it's a beautiful statement, but it also has an element of somberness in it. Uh, A little bit of a, that's hard. Uh, So what are we going to do? And if you think about it, part of it is that um, we've left out a description of what about the present. So this next section is going to be about um, how can the present get us around this uh, issue of uh, the past and the future? What could we know in the moment? And how could that actually benefit and, and give us ways to predict what was going to go on in, in the future? Is there, is there an element of uh, knowing and control that comes up in the present that's an opportunity to be able to do things. For the rest of this talk, I'd like to uh, have us picture ourselves as uh, parochial AI machines. Okay, So we're humans, but bottom line is in this uh, skull of ours, um, we are a parochial uh, AI machine. And the only way we navigate through our days is um, by using our five input, by our five lenses, by our five senses. That's the only way we know what's out there. It's the only way we can figure out what's uh, going on. And when we're in health, um, I hope everyone walked into this room thinking, I see reality, I see the stage, it all makes sense, it's all good. But when you get sick, something odd happens because it doesn't fit. The things you thought were okay are not matching. And... Um, There is this sense, this is not uh, right. Something is is wrong. And through the ages, 
we have um, gone to individuals, uh, priestly experts, who um, we go to get healed. Um, I think we go to the cardiac, uh, uh, cardiac surgeon the way our forebears always went to uh, shamans and, and medicine men. We go saying, um, I'm in trouble, and I want you to heal me. And this is an extremely powerful uh, moment, but there's an issue here, which is that what begins, and I as a physician have uh, known this in the last year a couple of times when, when some things happened to me, there's this weird thing that our brain does where we go, okay, tell me what to do. Um, there's an asymmetric dialogue that actually gets set up with the physician. And it's almost uh, uh, like a, a, a bargain or where the, the idea is, I am here. If you heal me, I'll, I'll follow your orders. I'm, I'm going to admit I don't know what's going on. And in return, you're going to heal me. And that has um, some power. You sort of, okay, you, you deal with it. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to. At the same time, it prevents individuals from owning where they are and feeling uh, you know, with themselves and, and, and empowered. So this, there's a transfer of agency that is grounded on a contract. So in return for health, I'm going to, let, I'm, I'm going to allow this to, ha- to happen. That is the way the medical system uh, works today. Uh, in return for that uh, uh, transfer of agency, we get these awesome lenses uh, we get these awesome recipes, but if you think of what separates you from that priestly expert, with the exception of surgeons, where there are, t- where there are uh, uh, tools that sit in there, with the exception of uh, the surgeons, it's about lenses, it's about recipes. And what you assume is that person has the right lenses and the right recipes for me. And I'm going to let them uh, uh, sort of guide me through, uh, go, uh, so tell me what to do. Uh, and the f- interesting things is in trials, people are called subjects. And when you get the information from a, a doctor, what is it called? Your orders. You follow those orders. So I think it's interesting to think about whether that contract, that transfer of agency, is actually uh, working. Um, and and why it isn't working if it isn't working, and um, I think it's reasonable to push on it if you if we don't get what we should what we would like out of that contract. Most of the treatments that are you know the trillions of dollars that are spent on on uh, disease, most of that are for symptoms, not the actual disease. And when you get a treatment for a disease, it's mostly this will help you. Uh, there's a thirty percent, there's an eighty percent chance this will help you. There's not a knowledge, this is going to help you. And often, it's looking at symptoms. How am I going to treat that symptom? So I'm going to argue that actually that contract is okay, but it's not uh, like working the way you would normally have a contract working. We should ask, are there other ways to do that? What you really would like to have is a more symmetric dialogue. You would like to have uh, something more like a co-pilot, where the expert comes in, and their job is to help you but it's to help you, not this is what I want you uh, to do. So uh, I think we need to, as uh, technologists, think of how is it possible to shift that asymmetric dialogue to a more symmetric one, particularly in navigating between health and disease. So uh, this diagram, which is used for another purpose, shows a description 
of what you would like to have. You would like to have a uh, way of displaying um, the contour map between health and disease. You would like to know if I have that triple cheeseburger or those two Dunkin' Donuts or uh, the chips or whatever, am I going off course? You would like to know if I go and I meditate or if I go and I run or if I go and I do this, is that moving me towards or, or not towards there? And the way to do that um, is probably not to use the existing cohort studies that are used, but instead to come up with a new way of collecting data. So as an example, I think there's a beautiful prototype. This is less than a year old. This group just keeps growing. Um, there's a small startup uh, that is led by uh, Tom Insel, who used to be the head of uh, the NIMH, is now at, at Verily. Um, his daughter um, said, why don't we ask people whether they would like to help each other? She started this site called Seven Cups of Tea. This is about people who are depressed or are having mood issues. And she said, let's, let's actually have the people who are having issues learn from each other and both give advice and get advice at a, that co-piloting level. And let's see what happens where you don't have a, a priestly expert that's driving it but actually people learning from each other. She started this site, and uh, last time I looked, it had just gone over a million users. It's unbelievable. Uh, just has gone viral. A million people um, collecting it. Look there if you want to have a, a live example of what happens when people who are having issues on mood are actually um, not seen as just the person who is sick, but actually have something to share with another very important energy, very important uh, uh, thing to, to tap into. I dream about changing how guidelines are set. So right now, sitting behind the priestly expert is what uh, advice to give. And that advice comes from guidelines. When, when someone says, I'm going to give you insulin, or I'm going to suggest that you go on an anticoagulant, that procreal AI machine that sits in that uh, physician's head is not conjuring it up. It's coming out of only, only coming from the data that sits in studies that said, I took this many patients, and when I did this, I, I learned this. When I took Framingham Heart Study, and I studied these individuals, and they changed their diet, uh, this happened. Or an example of looking at cardiovascular disease, 26 years here. Um, atrial fib. So the, the reason why the experts are experts is that they know how to refer to recipes that have been uh, done very likely not on you. <laughs> okay. So who says that that actually is something that's going to help you? And so the alternative is to say, I wonder if there's a way where those who get sick are the ones who build the knowledge base. Could you build an exploratorium where people, as they are having issues come up, are actually the ones who are providing data, not just about the symptoms, because by the time the symptom comes up, it's too late. What you really want is you want the context. You want all the things that happened before the 95% failure rate that turned something into a liver not working or a kidney not working, etc. And the only way you're going to get that data is not out of electronic medical records. 
It's not going to work. <laughs> the only way you're going to get that data is to actually have contextual information. And um, this is a great debate that sort of has been had a subconscious level this uh, this week. Um, potentially passive data complemented by trigger context, not just passive data. Very interesting question whether of, of, of how to do that. Um, and, and I think that uh, the, you know, the difference between getting something that will actually be likely to work is going to be in proportion to how many doppelgangers you can find out there that will actually give you a clue of whether that's something you should do. That, that, that's that's where, we're, where we're going. Um, uh, a lot of people will ask, what sensor should we uh, use to, to help uh, in this exploit? And um, I would say, don't do heart rate, don't do this, don't do that. Well, you do those, but um, I think we have to be a little more creative. Um, when you look at a picture like this, it is not hard to see that these uh, kids have something in common. Um, what's really fun is it stays over age. What I wish we were building was uh, assessment for things like vitality. We, we need to come up with ways of looking at people and, and how to help them have that resilience, how to um, be able to know where they are in their life. And I think we have to think of integrated uh, uh, symptoms and, and tracking those. So anyone who has an interest in working on vitality, um, I will take that phone call 24-7 who wants to work on that. Right? I think that's the level at which, which you can work on things. Um, the fly in the ointment is that actually um, this is good, but... Um, how many people own a scale? How many people have lost weight because the, the scale has helped them? <laughs> okay. No, it, it's about that. It's about 10%. Okay. 90%. So showing someone an assessment of what is uh, happening with them, and there's a direct... There's a direct correlation between weight and uh, obesity. You know, <laughs> sort of direct. Okay. So you can't, well, it's not really what causes me to get fat. Um, you don't listen to it. Um, so um, the, the, the harder... Uh, let me back up. I think that the engineering needed to uh, uh, collect the assessments is literally a matter of time, not weather. All, all, the, all the assessments we could, could do. What, what uh, I'm concerned about is not enough people are thinking about what would you do if you could make that assessment. What, what are you going to do with it? How is that going to actually help someone to surface some particular fact that as an engineer you've gotten excited, ha, I can follow X. Um, and I think we have to put more time into um, uh, what we do with those assessments. There's sort of two um, components of, of looking at why people uh, do things, um, and they are entwined between elements of agency, which is why it's in the title, and, and motivation. Uh, there's a, a beautiful book uh, that came out this past year by Kevin Kelly, one of the editors of, of Wired. I highly recommend reading it. It has 12 um, components that they say in, in our age, he, he declares are inevitable. Things that actually we cannot stop. They're going to happen. And one of them is, is filtering. Um, uh, the barrage of data that comes at us all the time is one that you can't possibly consume. Hope, well, actually, I shouldn't say it. Good luck. And uh, I would worry what happened if you did consume. Um, and um, so filtering 
is a, a powerful tool to uh, basically allow uh, uh, some personalization in order to anticipate desires. So filtering um, is, is, is an important uh, component, but, but also the ability to change behavior by appealing to our non-rational motivations, our emotional triggers and unconscious biases is, is very important. So um, the last uh, several years, those who have talked about the difference between um, the equivalent of, you know, uh, what I feel in my reptilian brain and what I feel in the, or what I know in the cortex has actually become a science. And, uh, what we realize is that decisions that we make of whether we're going to do things are not just running around in the cortex in our consciousness, but just as importantly, uh, what's going on in the uh, midbrain, forebrain, uh, uh, subconscious decisions. And, um, Instead of this being hypothetical, this is uh, from yesterday's or the day before's uh, paper. Um, Companies are beginning to realize how extremely powerful it is to actually manipulate people, to have people change their behaviors, um, to know where they are without them even being aware of it at all. And I, uh, I'm concerned about that. Um, there's a great uh, pair of articles. Facebook targets insecure kids. Facebook rejects claim it targets insecure uh, teens. Yeah. Someone on the PR team, I'm going to make sure we got a companion article, came out. Um, I do not mean to uh, uh, impugn uh, Facebook. I'm, I'm trying to refer to a very important fact, and it actually comes around to what has been happening and I think probably was happening in the last election which is the ability to influence people in ways where they don't know that you don't know you're being influenced. And as we live more and more in a world where we are having filtering all the time, where choices are, are brought up, um, we're going to need to have tools, one of which I saw a little bit of uh, earlier today, where there's a choice um, and of, of, of what's going on. And... Um, in reference to agency and, and, and free will, I think it's um, uh, really important to ask, you know, sh- should we be aware, should, it, should we be responsible, even if we don't do a very good job of it, uh, do we want to keep the responsibility with the individual for the decisions that they're, uh, they're making? Um, this uh, representation that comes from a trip I took to Tehran in, in November uh, Marisa, uh, an artist there, um, I thought captured this. The first is a, a, a glass or um, skull, and inside, I don't know if you can see it, see it it's my camera, um, they're jigsaw puzzles. And the concept is that we have to put reality together that way. And then this other image of what's in our head or not, I think I'm using to try to convey to you what a precious component we have in terms of how we use our own head, our consciousness to, to make decisions. And I think we're going to have to have a, a debate about the efficiency of getting people to do things when they don't know what's going on, the efficiency of that, and um, uh, thinking that that actually has implications that, that are, are not good. And, and so um, the same way as food has um, nutritional effects, when you, when you buy a package of food, I'm wondering whether when you consume thoughts, uh, would it be a good idea to have some sort of consumer information tag on what was done to the filtering that led to that? Wouldn't it be nice to have a consumer report uh, equivalent tag when you're consuming information of what was the starting material and how you got there? And I think that demand to go, I need to see that. I want to know how you say that is or is not fake news. I'd like to see that. I think think we should, should think about that. 
want to turn now to doing and pausing. Um, the technological tools that have us living differently than uh, 10, 20 years ago, which have this awesome capabilities to enhance our, our lives, um, at the same time they're providing those benefits, I think we need to think of um, some of the negative issues that, that come from those. Um, the chance that uh, people have parsed their day into intervals of time, that they're going to do this and they're going to do that, etc., um, is squeezing us. And it's squeezing us uh, from the time that's most uh, valuable, uh, which is the time we're pausing. Um, that's why that... Uh, a quiet chamber that we have next door to us is what I'm going to go into when I finish this lecture. <laughs> right? <laughs> Denal? Yeah. I want to go in that chamber. Um, and, um, you know, it's interesting. It's been, this issue has been around for about a hundred years. I think many of you have seen uh, uh, Metropolis and that description of it. But um, in order to represent that and, and, the, and the concern, I think it's worth thinking of endangered experiences the way we think of endangered species. So right now, when you have an, a species that you consider it's endangered species, there are certain laws and protections that come back to, to make sure that doesn't uh, go extinct. Um, maybe we should designate endangered experiences and, and think of what those are and how important they are in ways, ways to protect them. And there is a photographer in North Carolina that you may have seen um, Eric Pixergill, uh, Pixergill um, who um, is, um, I think, doing a pretty good job of showing what happens to us uh, and, and the world we're living in that we just don't see. We doesn't even notice. So uh, this is actually Eric and his wife in bed. Notice his hand by the um, clicker. Um, wonderful artist. You can go on his website to, to look at, at those photographs. Um, here's another example. Um, he's got about uh, 50 of these. They're awesome. They help us see how um, weird <laughs> our world is, uh, whether we're sitting on a train or a bus or at a stop or things like that. And, we're, and um, what I fear is that um, we're losing that time to have the dialogue with ourselves. So if we're going to have an alternate to someone filtering and going at a, a midbrain level and, and, and turning us, I think the only hope we have is to make sure that we have those times with ourselves. This uh, picture of this girl in 57 is the exact age I was when I was growing up in New York City. And I remember the free time. I remember the time when I wasn't doing anything and how powerful that was. And I think we need it as adults. I think we need it as, as individuals. And um, it's, it's shrinking. Um, in 1909, again, people who thought about it long ahead of time, I just want to highlight this uh, statement by E.M. Um, e. Forrester, who you'll know for other stories. I don't know if you know this story called The Machine Stops, but I think he says it pretty well here. Man, the flower of all flesh, the noblest of all creatures visible, man who had once made God in his image and had mirrored his uh, strength on the constellations, beautifully naked man was dying strangled in the garments that he had woven. Century after century had he toiled, and here was his reward. Truly, the garment had seemed heavenly at first, shot with colors of culture, sewn with the threads of self-denial. And heavenly, it had been so long as man could shed it at will and live by the essence that is his soul, 
and the essence equally divine that is his body. I think we have to ask, what is it that um, uh, anticipates um, that, and how can, how can we uh, help prevent that? Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Miklu uh, Silvanto, um, said something that a year ago I, I don't think I would have appreciated, which he said, I grew up believing that capitalism, liberalism, and technology would usher in the inevitable, delightful future. I think I grew up that way, and my guess is that many of you in the audience grew up thinking, capitalism, liberalism, technology, that's our solution. We're going we're gonna to pull it off. Um, I now see these as precious tools that um, are non-neutral and can either help or hurt. So what I mean by that is the economic growth on which capitalism rests has a potential of uh, driving the need for growth, of uh, driving us to where a system collapses under consumption. And we need to think about uh, that. So it's not the capitalism itself. It's like what happens because of and similarly, um, with regard to, to liberalism, the freedom to express yourself, the freedom to do this or that, um, has an awesome opportunity. But it also, um, at the time that you have an embracing, embracing of, of diversity, um, that toleration of, of hate and the ability for people to take advantage of it, we should, we should remember. And uh, with the technology, um, it has that opportunity to enhance, but it also has uh, an, an opportunity to, to constrict. Um, and uh, in those last uh, 105 or 106 years, um, I've been spending time thinking of what happens in the difference between whether you trust someone or um, what happens when uh, the presence of violence, whether it's in the news or, or other places, has you beginning to fear. And you switch in terms of uh, how you feel about yourself, how you feel about others. Um, uh, I'm, I'm just recommending that if you haven't uh, read this book on tyranny by uh, Tim Snyder that you do that. So uh, I want to ask, do we have an incumbent responsibility as designers of technology to protect uh, these endangered uh, experiences and how we use technology? In The Matrix, the movie The Matrix, if you remember, there uh, was this concept that um, uh, our view of reality um, was uh, was configured and people were able to sort of interact through through that through that matrix one way to think of what happens in a, in going through our days is that we um, have an ability to consider that that matrix is a solid matrix and that there's no learning around it and that we should take it as it is um, or we should re- can recognize that that matrix actually can be fluid and when it is fluid, when that matrix is fluid, when you question it, you have an ability to do self-discovery. And so I think we there's this beautiful opportunity of sort of switching back and forth of how we want our world. Do we want it all where there are known answers, where there are known facts, where everything is, is understood? Do we want to entertain some fluidity that allows that self-discovery? I bring that up because in medicine, the structure, that medical industrial complex that exists, is one that assumes that um, there are experts, and you're going to follow that order, and this is the way the knowledge is, um, that asymmetry. And many aspects of that are on that scale between fundamentalism and, and exploration. And 
the ability to move that uh, wheel is something to think about. And the same thing's true in education. Schools can either be, I'm going to give you these facts, I'm going to give you these rules, I'm going to, you're going to learn this, I'm the teacher, um, uh, do this. Or they can be uh, opportunities for people to explore, to learn, to, to discover. Um, last segment is um, that um, Claude Shannon gave a, a, another beautiful quote on a time uh, about dogs and robots. I'm not going to read this. Um, the, the initial design... Um, and information storage that we achieved when we became multicellular organisms uh, about three billion years ago um, got completely switched uh, 5,000 years ago when you could actually write down information and where information knowledge and design became separated from biology but contingent upon humans. What has just happened in the last 10 years is actually a further uncoupling now, knowledge, wisdom, and design can occur in a digital space that's actually independent of humans. And it is uh, defined by uh, humans, allowing evolution beyond uh, humans. Um, why that's, I think, important is that that, wi- that knowledge and wisdom design, uh, when it's occurring in digital space, um, there is a shift to a multi-component non-human organism as critical to evolution as the finding of multicellular life. In the title is this description of free will, this ability to look at uh, good and bad. And the definition has in there a description of uh, free will as without constraint of necessity or one's own discretion. Going back to what I said originally about us thinking of ourselves today as parochial AI machines, design and free will, um, that without constraint at one's discretion, today we navigate the world as these parochial AI machines, recognizing that there are benefits and risks of having a central AI machine which is actually able to make those uh, decisions. And you could argue that better decisions could be made by that uh, central AI machine, but it's a very different concept of free will. It's a very different concept of agency and at one's own discretion. So where does that tag of at one's own discretion go when you go from each of us being a parochial AI machine to a central, is it the central AI machine's discretion? Is that where it goes? Is that central AI machine do it for us? Are we going to say that that's something we want to keep uh, for ourselves? So free will of and by an individual is very likely already an endangered experience, and we need to to think about that. Um, Several years ago, I came across this spectacular 1888 woodblock print uh, from a meteorologic uh, tech that a woman wrote in, uh, in Paris. And... I thought, oh, I know what this means. This is that transition in the dark ages between those that were um, uh, sort of living, uh, thinking of uh, the fact that uh, the world was uh, preordained and 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 sort of in the uh, world of uh, forces that were beyond our control. And this was a, a, an example of someone entering the age of, of, of reason and, and how lucky that was. I think that at the same time, you could look at where we are in our evolution and say that we are actually exiting a world where the data, the risks, the information that we have um, is um, putting us in a digital world 
pretty much out of phase, out of scope with who we were through all of evolution uh, trying to, to how, how, trying to navigate. And I think it has a, it has a different mood to it now than it did when I was uh, looking at it as a escape from the Middle Ages. You know, what's it going to be like as we leave, leave this world where we've had our own lenses and, and made our decisions that way? Uh, so just to close, um, I want to give a, a couple of quick uh, art projects because I hope they, they link in. Um, several years ago, um, I felt as if some of the mistakes I was making in my life were because I was rushing through it and I was thinking that I needed to always be finding an opportunity and, and sort of scanning and, and searching. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if you could build a rearview mirror for your life? Where, when you're trying to make decisions of going forward, could you somehow represent um, what uh, life had been for you? Because it's only about every one or two times a year that when you look back on your life, there was something that was really uh, a valuable shift in who you were. I'm not talking about um, I had a birth or I had a wedding. I'm talking about where you change who you are. And... If you uh, had a way to actually uh, acknowledge that and put it in as a rearview mirror to, to remember, it seemed like it would be uh, valuable. So um, back in uh, 2011, um, I spent a year sort of collecting uh, data, uh, working uh, with, uh, with an artist on, you know, could I come up with a, a way of looking at intent and chi and, and essence? Um, could I start dividing my life into sort of what I had learned, how I acted, um, I started. These are uh, real notes from back then about um, the things that really I had learned or I felt were important to, to how to grow. Neil Young, uh, you know, am I in the process of what Neil Young meant when he said you will come around? Started collecting those things. Started trying to organize them into various uh, things that that were were worth uh, reminding myself. Dividing my life not by decade but by ways that I went about living and, and working with other people. Notice the bolded one. I'm in the cultivating seeds, solo flights of impact now, I feel. Um, and began trying to come up with ways to visualize that so that it would make sense to, to me, um, trying to come up with little um, uh, icons or, or patterns that, that, that might uh, fit and, and give uh, a way of representing uh, various uh, components. And then um, working with Courtney Lipskin, um, turning that into a pastel that she could uh, work from. And then she spent uh, nine months straight taking 55,000 microbeads and building up uh, the, the analogy of that. So she would uh, take the painting, you know, the, the pastel on the bottom, uh, put in the microbeads on the top, draw in and put in uh, jewels or shells or this or that, and sort of building this whole thing up. And um, that's uh, Courtney uh, working away. And um, it ended up being 100 inches long, 2 inches wide. And when I looked, I thought, God, this is awful. This is so egotistical. Um, <laughs> it's, it's totally wrong. So we stopped and went back, and we built a backlit 2 feet by... Um, uh, 12 feet uh, long um, uh, backlit uh, image of the sky where we uh, worked with uh, the guys at Microsoft to capture the birth of stars and the death of stars to put a little more context that you know this isn't just one person things like that and um, 
to, in order to get a sense of sort of how this, uh, um, how I feel when I'm there, I want to play a small bit of uh, music that uh, comes from Eric Whitaker, um, who built the virtual choir um, by taking 183 people who didn't uh, know each other, capture their individual voices, uh, put it all together, did a virtual choir, because um, for 10 seconds I want you to get a sense of sort of uh, what that uh, feels like. chance for you to think about what you would put on your rear view mirror. So um, that was a one piece. Um, just really uh, quickly, um, been concerned about this aspect of owning uh, unknown unknowns. Um, I think all of us were impacted by Guantanamo Bay and by the Syrian refugees. For me, it was the images of uh, the prisoners in Guantanamo Bay um, with the um, barbed wire, with a razor wire around them. I couldn't get out of my head, and I didn't know how to feel about myself as an American, having that go on. Uh, in, in, with the Syrian refugees, the uh, images that we'd see in the news about how we treated each other um, and uh, uh, felt as if there was a need to acknowledge um, what uh, Hannah Arendt has talked about, which is um, the good and bad that gets done uh, in the world is a lot of it by not uh, being aware of things or not acknowledging or denying things. So took the phrase from the um, Bible that says, uh, forgive us for we know not, or forgive them for they know not what they have done, converted it into micro neon with a, a razor wire and, and built this uh, piece, t- which I have in my house to try to, like the rearview mirror, remind me that uh, it's the things that we are not paying attention to that, that we should. It's very easy to lead our lives and flush things uh, out of it. And then the last slide is um, the last week I've uh, been lucky enough to be working on a project, which I'm not going to describe for time, which is on uh, cosmic microwave background radiation and how to see invisible uh, things, um, how to make noise so it can be uh, beautiful. So um, this lecture um, was one which had some strange uh, t- terms in it, uh, agency, etc., um, like to leave people with a sense of uh, thinking about what are the incumbent responsibilities that we have to ourselves, to each other, to, to society. As designers of technology to protect endangered experiences and as artists um, to enable all to feel these issues. Thank you very much. I normally make a joke at this point, but it's not, not a jokey talk. Uh, it is the bravest talk I think I've ever seen. Uh, I don't know about you, uh, because it starts with science and medicine and goes all the way into politics and philosophy and who we are as people. So I think a second round of applause for that. Uh, it's just amazing. You thoroughly earned the statue I'm going to give you later, although it feels a bit inadequate. Uh, uh, so I'm going to start the questions. Uh, one immediately occurs to me from your ending. 
uh, with uh, the part about uh, forgive them for they don't know what they do. But in a digital era, we will know more about what we are doing. So is that both the problem, uh, because it allows us to become physically disconnected. And so uh, we feel that we have no obligation to the other end of a digital pipe. I think that is a, an effect, and this is the thing we talk about with BT a bit, is if it's the other end of a digital pipe, I'm not really connected to you because I never had a sense of fully expressive connection to you. But on the other hand, I do know about you, and you know about me. I just don't care like I used to. Is it, how, how do you resolve those two things? Um, I'm not sure how you resolve those. I think the problem is uh, really an important one. Uh, one thought is um, it used to be that um, when something came into your realm, um, you almost had a uh, balanced opportunity to, to do something about it. Uh, something came into your village or, or something like that. By that I mean the, the frequency of, of horrible things uh, that, that would actually enter your world and you would feel responsible was, was for low. was low. Yeah. Because yeah. community just, had boundaries and protected you and lived in a certain existence. Exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, so uh, this flooding of, of all these things continuously um, has a, a, a real danger of having us become mute. There's nothing I can do. So, so what I'm, I'm most worried is that um, the, the sort of the banality of these horrors <laughs> Um, meaning yes. the, the frequency of them is numbing us and um, overwhelming us to the point where we, we can't, I can't possibly deal with that. So I think we have to come up with a way of not letting that happen, of, of feeling connected, and of not someone choosing uh, what it is that, that are the ones we're going to respond to. I mean, some, somehow where it's not the fil- we don't use filtering as, the, oh, well, well, we'll only show these things. So if I extend that point a bit, let's say we could transfer a fully sensory experience that was equivalent to the community experience. Frequency is still higher, yep. but now what I send you is a fully sensory experience that appalls you or, or delights you for the positive things. Uh, am I forced by my humanness to react to that in a way that I'm not? It's banal today because it's only monosensory. It's a video image. Yep. I look away. I've seen horror films. They look just as bad. It's disconnected from me, so it's probably not really happening. It's some movie somewhere. Or it's a set of people who I just feel dis- disconnected from. So even though you see them as humans, you, you move on. It's a good Samaritan thing in some ways. Right? Yeah. Uh, if I could transmit a, a fully sensory experience, I couldn't turn away. Does, I, that, does that help? Yeah, I, I, I hope so. And I think that it's sorely needed. So this concept of the um, remoteness of it uh, and bringing it closer and the power of that and being able to get to react. But at the same time, I think we have to anticipate the equivalent of being in continuous uh, post-traumatic stress yeah. uh, syndrome from, from feeling all that all the, the, uh, the time. So I think, um, I think to get people to have more proximal and to really have our senses connect, that's beautiful. We have to do that. As we do that, we may overwhelm people. And so we should simultaneously thinking of the beauty of having that uh, directness and at the same time... The um, despair. Of, yeah, yeah. So, but then back to... And then I'll open it to the audience because it's not just about you and me, it turns out. Um, <laughs> the AI system. So if I had uh, what Chris, and you, you talked to Chris, it calls augmented intelligence systems that's there to help you, not to replace you. So if that system was trusted by you to select the n- a number of objects that you were who could consume as an individual and that is an individual thing some people are incredibly empathetic yep. and would be overwhelmed by one for me since i'm british and i've had every emotion distilled out of me i would need to see a lot uh, <laughs> of stuff um 
But is that the answer, that uh, I need an intelligent agent who will select the frequency, not whether I see them or not, but the frequency that matches me? Um, I love the choice in the system that uh, Chris uh, showed. Um, uh, this was a way where if you're trying to explore and understand, um, you're not driven by uh, something else. You drive. It's more about being in the driver's seat to, to make yeah. those connections. And that's extremely uh, uh, valuable. The um, uh, and, and I think I should just say, and I think that that is so far in the right direction that uh, we, we need to be able to get there. Well, I'll stop there. It's really pretty. Great. To the audience, if we can have the lights up, it's just a little easier for us to see you. There you go. There's quite a few of them. Uh, okay, Bob. Mike, here we go. There's a mic there for you. He's going first because he's, uh, he's a senior Bell Labs alum. <laughs> Very senior. <laughs> the, um, um, reading this wonderful book, uh, which I don't know whether you've read, called Homo Deus. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I had a very hard time not putting uh, Yuval Harari's um, uh, uh, book in. Um, and now that you said it, I wish I had because it's, <laughs> it's, it's influenced me. So tell me why you brought it up. Um, I'm really excited to hear um, where you're going to go with that because I, I think he's uh, awesome. Yeah, um, both Homo sapiens and Homo deus. Or deus, yeah, uh, sapiens, sapiens and Homo deus. Yeah. yeah, just spectacular. Yeah, um, he, he. Sorry, Yuval. <laughs> <laughs> he he has this thesis that um, our century has been dominated by humanism and the value of the individual. And that the growing role of technology is such that it will overwhelm that role. Yep. And that he paints a very uncertain and kind of frightening future to where technology takes over more and more jobs, more and more decisions. You know, you would like the patient to have more of a role. And he says, no, that ain't going to happen. Your AI in the sky is going to have more in a role. And I was interested in your views on yeah. his. Um, if, uh, so I, I, I love his thinking. Uh, anyone who has not uh, picked up uh, Sapiens or Homo Deus, uh, um, they go really as a beautiful pair. Um, I actually uh, want to uh, have a dialogue with him because um, I disagree with him on, on two points. Uh, um, I disagree that uh, the uh, fact that the AI, uh, the central AI, as opposed to the Procol AI machine, um, can get it correctly all the time is worth, therefore, giving up the fallible you know, foible-laden Procol AI decisions that, that we make. When that happens, we become the mitochondria of the mm -hmm. cell. We become the, do you know what I'm saying? Of, 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 a, of a multi-component AI organism, okay? Right? And, and, and I think that there are, um, this is a species-specific, biased, subjective uh, description. I think we're worth uh, keeping, even if we are making mistakes. And the other thing that I disagree with him on, in terms of um, this, uh, the, the element of the of, of uh, free will, I think his sense is uh, grow up, right? 
We, we never had it. I mean, in, in some ways, you know, it was an illusion that we ever had any decisions to make, and we're waking up to that, and, and you humanists, uh, uh, I don't agree. Um, I, I, um, uh, and I'd love to uh, have a, a discussion or dialogue of what is it about how we do our thinking that is um, maybe based on the mistakes that we make, <laughs> uh, the, the things we don't quite get right, which are, are just okay. So, so I, I think um, uh, he uh, is uh, someone that I uh, have enormous respect for. I'm really glad you brought that up. <laughs> Yeah, we're actually inviting him for one of these future lectures oh, that we haven't set up. In right. Well, case, I'll come coming back. Yeah. Uh, okay, I came Martin. to Speedy with here. I'll come back. <laughs> so one of the big problems in the world today is that there's a very large number of people who are willing to believe incredibly stupid things from incredibly stupid and manipulative people. Yep. Is there a gene for that? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say, is there a resilience? Uh, uh, <laughs> I would like to submit myself in the resilience study. <laughs> and I'm rooting for the dogs. <laughs> it wasn't even a question in the end, uh, but it's very good. Very nice. <laughs> I just, so uh, what I will uh, turn that into a question. Um, yeah. In complex scenarios, does the intelligence of the people become an important factor that causes mass behavior, assuming average intelligence equals mass behavior, that is more harmful than in the past where intelligence and the ability to consume and understand these multifaceted stimuli is now in a select few, so we get more conflict between those two bodies. I... Absolutely. That's not a sort of. That's absolutely. And I don't think we even. Uh, I don't think we can begin. I think we need to um, recognize the severe shift in the power of how uh, information uh, ends up uh, modifying, um, sort of uh, how people are, are are reacting, not just at the conscious, but at this uh, uh, forebrain level. The one I'm really worried about is the things where you don't notice that you're wondering. Why am I wanting to park by that Dunkin' Donuts? Those are the types of things. And there's so much money and so much power that sits in the ability to do that that I think we have to think very carefully about... And the power is in a rarefied space of highly motivated corporations and people and whatever it is who want you to behave that way, Mm -hmm. drive you to behave that way, and then wonder why when you... They've driven you to behave that way. You no longer actually account for yourself. You no longer exhibit agency. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Yeah, we're going. We're going to be uh, diverse. Yes. Hello. Um, uh, Today is uh, May the fourth, so I couldn't uh, avoid say May the fourth be with you. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know where this came from, but it seems to be a no, thing. I knew it was coming. I've seen it on Facebook, so it this must way, be a not thing. another way. And your, your comment about vitality really intrigued me because uh, I was wondering if, if at some point we will be able to see in the, in the genome that vitality. Is that what is uh, triggering your interest? The triggering the interest, it could be. The, the thing that was triggering my interest is um, I think of there as being um, raw data that we're learning how to turn into, I'm going to call it biometric vocabulary, that can get turned into clinical uh, uh, vocabulary that can get turned into symptoms. What do people want? 
They want to be able to follow symptoms and how am I doing in my world, right? They're not interested in clinical vocabulary. They're not interested in biometric. And I think our sensors are primarily coming up with biometric vocabulary, coming up with uh, clinical uh, uh, symptoms. But if, if I wanted to have something that you know everyone could leave here and be able to track, um, certainly one of those I would want to have is uh, how am I doing on, on my vitality and what can I do to restore it? Because um, on that nature-nurture uh, component, um, the one thing we have under our control <laughs> is the things we can do to keep it so we have vitality. Now, some of that's going to come from the genes, but I think the way you think, the way you treat yourself, what you consume, I don't mean food, uh, other things are under our control and have a chance of giving us an element of resilience um, by um, how we treat ourselves. And if we had a way to, to sort of assess that that on the dashboard, I think that would be so awesome and, and would would help people across so many aspects of navigating. Which, which ties to your argument about uh, time to have an experience, a, a quiet moment going to the Anacote Chamber, which now you, you all have access to uh, because I think we all need it. Uh, but that then is part of vitality, you would argue. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, let's go further back. So the people at the front, go ahead. Songwen, I think there. Hi, I, I really like that lecture a lot, um, particularly how you frame it as the future of human agency. Um, in particular, uh, the en- endangered experiences uh, that you mentioned. Uh, this is sort of a simple question, hopefully uh, as a precursor for a longer discussion, but uh, is there a particular endangered experience that you feel like is the key experience to preserve or the one to focus on? Um, uh, I don't know if it's uh, the key one, but for me, the one I've been uh, feeling is um, the, t- uh, the time where you get to have a dialogue with yourself. So um, it, it, you know, whether it's the shower, whether it's 4 a.m., I think each of us. But, boy, out of 24 hours a day, um, I feel really lucky if I have three, five minutes of a dialogue with myself. Um, how many, you know, when's the last time you had, uh, you know, were able to pause enough to have a dialogue with yourself about uh, what's going on? And I think that motivation, non-AI-driven <laughs> subliminal motivation will come from being able to give people that pausing that will allow them to have a dialogue with themselves that says, I should do this, I shouldn't do that. And, and, and that's where our, I'd love to see our decisions be able to be guided more at that level. So I think the endangered experiences are those times we don't have a dialogue with ourselves. So I'll let you answer when it's for me. It's actually planes, weirdly enough, because you're not connected to many things yes. there. I also use music, so I don't hear what's going on in the plane. But the music I select is also designed to be a trigger to the thought I want to have. Right? Because certain music works at certain points in time. So it acts as a drown around. I don't care for noise-canceling headphones because I'm interested in more than that. So that's how I do it. And actually, that's why plane rides are not so bad for me. Yeah, it's isolation time. I, I call it my 33,000-foot meditation. There <laughs> you go. Which is why no, you're, no you're, you're, you're our no savior, apparently. <laughs> No, any, I, I think it, for many people who are frequent travelers, um, you, shame on you if you have a ability to use your Twitter account while you're on the yeah, plane. Exactly. Don't pay for the Wi-Fi, everyone. Don't Seriously. pay for the Wi-Fi. Uh, just uh, zone out. Mike. 
I guess my question is, is that with all this data, don't you see that capitalism has a really powerful effect of negatively impacting because you're going to be tra- tracing all of this information at the genetic level? And I just wonder what your, your thoughts are. On, on go, go one, I think so, but go one more sentence into because. Right. Can you take that question and go one more sentence? Because, uh, for example, can you just uh, because I think I know what you're talking about. Well, I think uh, I'm talking more about like uh, you know if uh, I donate my uh, I go to 23andMe yep. and I give my sample in and now all of a sudden they say oh you have a, a high percentage of of Alzheimer's say yep um, and then I suddenly find out that my insurance uh, policy is now going to go up because of the fact that, that I have this. You have knowledge of a pre-existing condition or predisposition. Right. And, and so and now it's going to have even more because now we're going to look at resiliency and we're going to look at all these other things and we're going to have this broad spectrum of information. And I think that there's a real risk that, 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 that there's not going to be protections for privacies and individuals. Um, I think we need to worry about those uh, protections. Um, I think we uh, um, the the things that we don't pay attention to that surround it are all the atrocious things that are already done all the time with our private information. And I see it as one more example of things that are turning into commercial benefit, not not a, a leading cause. And so I think it's important to, to, to do that. But I think most people don't realize how much of their credit card transactions, when they go to CBS, when they go to this, when they go to that, that there's just streaming out for 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 benefit. And I would put the those aspects of the genetic in that bucket. I think that the safeguard on the insurance are real, but I think that um, there is so much other medical information that also should be pulled under that, that we should talk about health information and how that gets used, and instead of making it a separate uh, um, uh, issue, it comes under that. Uh, so you're not arguing for money under the mattress and home remedies? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, you, no, I'm not. No. Yeah. Uh, but, it had that, but on the other hand, there was a security in both those things, right? And so we have to, yeah. we have to find the new solution. Yes, go ahead. Uh, we're going to do a couple more questions, and then we have to get Stephen so uh, to a couple. times, right, the convergence of mathematics and biology and science. So I was thinking about, uh, you know, Symptoms like autism, right? It is, in some ways, the detection of sig- uh, signal from noise. And some people, they're not able to focus well in group settings. What they infer, what I would infer, is very different from what somebody else and what is the norm. Mm-hmm. So you can have predictive treatments as well. Like, you hit upon a point. Nature is not binary, right? It is a state of uh, nature. It's a Bayesian state. So if I want to really treat somebody, maybe he is 10%, uh, or there's a 90% probability he's going to develop the disease. So why not I start treating him beforehand? A normal doctor might not, but somebody could actually cause the gene to kind of stay in a better state. So where is science on those kind of treatments? So this is kind of a, you know, Mm -hmm. Well, again, it's not a binary answer to it. But that's, that's the great potential, of course, is that, right, yeah. is that we, we start modifying in advance. One Correct. more simpler issue. You've got, you're going to have to speed up a bit then. Yes. Now, I come from India, right? There's a lot of pollution there. Why doesn't every phone have a pollution monitoring uh, warning in it? Uh, you can have an oxygen sensor. 
and that can be done pretty quickly. And I'm sure Bell Labs can also help in collecting that data because, I mean, half a billion people are affected by pollution. So if you avoid these things, yep. when I first came to this country, I never knew Coke was that bad. I'm scientific enough, but you, you're not aware. Yep. And I would guzzle two or three Cokes a day, right? Yep. So that's the simpler problem. The first one I've asked was the little more, you know, there's a, there, complex, but it's yeah. there, there are ways to anticipate uh, the full symptoms and to begin treating. Absolutely. That's as you said. There's another thing which I think we have to allow, which is some people uh, may feel as if what you consider um, a distressing uh, symptom um, may be one that they want uh, to be with. And I think that's another thing is that who are we to say that something that's off from norm is not something that someone wants to have as a state? So I, I, I just want yeah, to... Yeah, I, I rather like that. That's why I like the noodle view of the world because the noodle view doesn't say there's an answer. It says you are a complex set of functions. Yep. And if my thing is just a little bit out there, but it's still okay and I like it out there, exactly. uh, that's not wrong. That's right. And so if you could then map that into a vitality function that said, given you're happy with this map of your life, what is the vitality activities you could embark upon to maintain or even improve that? It would be fascinating. All comes back to Chris in the end, doesn't it, it seems? Sanjay has been actually very patient for him, so uh, we'll go with Sanjay. I'm ready. (laughs) He rolled up his sleeve. Well, I've I've, I've, I've spent a couple of days with him, and and he's truly a friend now. Absolutely. From your point of view. From my point of view. Both points. How he feels is completely different. Sanjay's my ATP. No, but the... uh, uh, what a what a range from Mendelian diseases to to free will, and and a couple of questions along that line. One is again somewhat similar to the question that was asked: is rather than the binary phenotype, if the disease or non-disease is eventually the outcome, is it a matter of saying I am somebody who is five mutations away from that needle flipping? or 10 mutations away from a needle flipping? And is it the rise of probability through as you age that flips the needle or not? And there are things that can be done to prevent those mutations. That may be therapy that may be started saying, look, it's in your genotype or it's in your, there are, the blockers are not there, but I can prevent the necessary mutations from taking. Is that a line of therapy? Um, is it the right way of thinking about it? Let's pick it up later. Yeah. Um, the part that it feels uh, most ripe is in uh, in cancer, where if you know that these two um, uh, um, genes are going to end up, separate genes are going to end up being important, and you're already out here, um, I think there are things you could think of for a particular tumor of, of a sort of uh, preparing. For many other things outside of cancer, let's talk about it, because I'm not no. getting it as, as closely. Okay, we're going to wrap up there. We have... The uh, statue. Yeah, you, uh, what you get, other than a, a donation to a charity of your choosing, is you get to take this home, which mm. normally causes people to be perturbed that they now have to check their bags. <laughs> but, but we will actually mail it okay, to you okay. <laughs> as well. This is the uh, Shannon. I don't think Rick. this is the time to t- uh, test things on the airlines right now. <laughs> <laughs> Especially such a strange object. Exactly. Right. So yeah. well done. Thank yeah, you so thank much. You very much. Wonderful, wonderful Thanks for listening to this special bonus show. If you like this episode of Future Human, please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And also, feel free to leave a review at iTunes. 
Future Human is a production of Nokia Bell Labs. This episode was written and produced by me, Sandy Smolens, for Audiation.fm. It was recorded and mixed at the Loft in Bronxville, New York, by Matt Noble, who also composed the theme music with me. Audiation.